Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. How do you effectively spend billions of dollars of taxpayers' money to help fight global poverty? Alicia Phillips-Mandeville is the Vice President of the Department of Policy and Evaluation at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, also known as the MCC. The MCC is a bilateral United States foreign aid agency established by the US Congress in 2004 and independent from the State Department and the USAID. Alicia's background spans data-driven tools and qualitative research. She's worked at the intersections of governance and economic development and technology. The organisations she's worked for range from tech startups to NGOs, for the Deputy Secretary of the State of the US, as well as the MCC. During our conversation today, we're going to hear the latest thinking on how to spend money to fight global poverty, what the future could hold for inclusive investments, and why mitigating climate risks is vital if we are to fight poverty. So Alicia, welcome. Thank you, Katie. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, I will say that you'll hear me talk a little bit about how our mission statement at MCC is reducing poverty through growth. And I have to say that business fights poverty is just a much more active way of saying it. So um, in the in the contest for most actionable business cards, um, um, it's a pleasure to be joining you all. <laughs> ah, good to have you. And thank you for a compliment up front, <laughs> even if it's just about titles. Alicia, I wanted to start a conversation today with you. I mean, international support kind of ebbs and flows. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what the work that MCC is currently focused on and why are you focusing on these areas? Yeah, sure thing. So in the broad range of types of international support that there are, MCC occupies a kind of really specific space. Um, So we make fairly large scale investments to the tune of about half a billion dollars apiece um, in a really small number of countries that are poor but well governed in things that we identify as contributing to poverty reduction through economic growth. So there's that slogan I mentioned. Um, that's, our, that's our mission statement, reducing poverty through growth. Um, it's a US federal agency, it's an independent agency, but the way we work is really defined by kind of three core elements of, of MCC's model. And they, they explain what we do in the world. So um, let me actually just use them because I think they're a useful tool for people to understand what it is that we do and why we do it in that way. So there's kind of three key pieces. One is international support can and should be selective. Um, So MCC works, as I said, in a small number of countries. We use a really public process with a lot of publicly available policy data to determine which countries it makes sense for us to work in. So like I said, that's countries that are lower income or low middle income and are relatively well governed. So think about an Indonesia, but not a Malaysia. Malaysia is a more high income economy. Second, once we've selected where we're working, we're also really selective about the kinds of investments that we make. So you'll hear, I'll talk a little bit maybe about tools that we use um, in terms of economic analysis to really understand what can drive growth in that economy, what is constraining growth in that economy, and how do we use uh, make a grant-heavy investment to grow that space. So it turns out for us that winds up being actually quite a bit of infrastructure all over the world, a lot in Africa, Asia, and then to some extent Latin America. 
The second piece is that we really center country ownership. So MCC doesn't have a set of predetermined goals or types of infrastructure or types of work that we want to do, but we work with this kind of economic analysis approach and the country themselves to identify what are the best, most appropriate investments, and then work together on actually implementing them. And then the third is accountability. So international support should be accountable both to the countries that are receiving it and to the taxpayers that are supporting it. So for us, this means we're really clear up front about defining what the investment is. We're really transparent about it. We're really clear about defining what we think the outcome will be. We only make investments we think will have a rate of return of 10% in poverty reduction. And we're really clear about the evaluation of that work after it's done. So this kind of being selective, being really serious about country ownership, and then accountable for the results. It means that we work in a smaller number of places than all, most than all multilaterals and many foreign bilateral agencies, but it means that we really uh, stand behind the way we do the work. This all sounds lovely on paper and like I can see a pretty, pretty plan and a lovely strategy and maybe some PowerPoint slides, but I wondered whether you wouldn't mind sharing a bit more about what does that actually mean on the ground? Can you give us some examples of what this looks like? So there's kind of two main ways that MCC shows up in a country, right? So first is our compact model. And this is, like I said, really quite large, typically somewhere between $100 million and $600 million of investment that runs over a five-year window. And in what we call our compact model, which is our first and kind of most well-known tool, this is, again, in a select number of countries and really focuses on unbinding something that is constraining growth in that country and therefore poverty reduction. So for example, in Malawi, um, we have an investment there, compact investment that we finished in 2018 that was focused on the energy sector. So as you can imagine, that includes a considerable amount of energy infrastructure in terms of production and transmission lines and, and the things that were constraining the country's ability to produce a significant volume of electricity. At the time we started, only about 9% of Malawians actually had access to electricity. And so it really was a significant space that stifled kind of businesses' ability to work, individuals' and households' ability to work. So our compact with that country actually included, like I said, considerable amount of, of infrastructure, but then also a good bit of kind of institutional reform, which focused on the country's ability to manage and sustain that power production. And so the design of the investment as a whole, which ran over five years, really was to set Malawi up to have a power sector that was the foundation for kind of a, a modern economy, the access to power and infrastructure that many businesses as well as individuals need. So at this point, we completed that investment in 2018. So we've had a chance to actually do an evaluation on it, which is exciting because not only can I tell you what we did, but I can tell you what we think we got for it, um, which is to say that at the end of compact implementation, we estimate that the actual investment is going to generate about $768 million worth of net benefits. And that's in terms of people's actual ability to access and participate in the economy, whether they're individuals or businesses. You know, if you look online, you'll find our evaluation also finds things like there are things we could have done more rapidly. There are some things we could have completed to greater completion. And this is a piece of that transparency side. But in sum, that's how our compact investments work. It's really quite large investments in a critical sector, in the economy, to unlock growth and poverty reduction. We have a second type of investment called a threshold. The best example that in the same sector on the same continent would be Gambia, the Gambia, which we've only just approved actually this last month. So I don't have the evaluation information on that one yet, but our threshold programs are focused predominantly on the institutional reform environment. So not yet the infrastructure pieces, but much more focus on what does the sector need to be internally well-governed so that it is ready for a capital-heavy infrastructure investment. So in, in Gambia, this includes both some 
investment and work with the country government on the governance and regulatory structure around electricity and power, but then also some really important pieces around accountability. So that's both public stakeholder committees, the parliament, some civil society groups as well. So really that whole package around what does it take to have a productive power sector. So that's a bit long-winded. I'm afraid I'm a talker, but <laughs> you'll understand MCC's, um, the way it shows up on the ground is both of these two models, always some policy and institutional reform. Um, and then in our compact investments, quite a lot of infrastructure as well. It's really interesting and so, sort of seeing it all coming together and coming to life in, in, on the ground. And I wonder whether, Alicia, I mean, as you mentioned earlier on, the conversation of this podcast is all about business and business fighting poverty. What's your role in terms of engagement with business? Um, and how do you see business as part of your work? I think you'll hear in kind of what I've said so far, we actually think quite a lot about the role of business in the economy and how do our investments interact with that. So that's kind of the easiest first place to start. And I do think that that's kind of a definitive feature here. Like because we are focused on growth, you cannot think about economic growth and therefore poverty reduction without thinking about the business environment, the extent to which like small and medium sized businesses and large businesses are able to productively operate reliably. And so, you know, investments in the power sector, I think, are kind of some of the easiest ways to understand how we think about making an investment in, in an economy that is poverty reducing, but also recognizes the role that businesses play in economic growth and, and incomes and people's employment and things like that. So that's, that's the kind of easy, obvious one. Part of how we choose where we're going to work is also about the environment that I think most businesses find conducive to, to their own performance. So we do look at good governance. We do look at regulatory environments, business environments, investments in human capital that a country makes. So the, to, what, to what extent are they investing in health and education so that there's a population base of consumers and a labor force that is logical for businesses to engage with? So I think there's, there's quite a bit there. What's less easy to hear in my first round of answers, but is also equally true, is I think we are increasingly looking at the ways we think about how our own grant-based financing works in a blended finance dimension. So we think about leveraging kind of actual business investments in a country so that we're collectively and collaboratively helping to promote growth and poverty reduction. Um, and that, you know, we can talk about that in more detail if you like, but that is, I think, a newer place for international support and foreign assistance in general, which is to really think about what is the role of a grant financing place like MCC that has a specific model and an ability to put quite a lot of capital up front in certain different types of investments. And how do you think about leveraging that in a blended finance way so that private sector of the country itself or business partners from elsewhere are also part of being able to add to that equation? I'm picking up on your piece about some new places to do, expand on or, or move into. I mean, where do you see your work evolving? How do you see this sort of emerging over the next five to 10 years? I think it's hard to look around the world right now and not think that everything is constantly evolving. The last five years have been an eventful one for the planet as a whole, the last 18, I think, for most people. So at the risk of sounding silly, I think it's a there's a, a constant evolution of how this work has to show up in the world. You know, MCC is focused on reducing poverty through growth. And if we're thinking about what is it that drives growth, what is it that constrains growth, what stops people from being able to participate in the economy in ways that actually affect their own lives, we have to be responsive to the world around us. So I think there's a couple of things kind of specifically. One is some of the risks that people have always thought about existing in the world are much more visible than they were before. And I'll use summary terms rather than kind of I'm really you know technically specific ones. And I think my technical colleagues would probably get on my case about it. But I think 
for most people, you know, we knew pandemics could exist before, but we hadn't seen one that actually stopped the planet in its tracks. And we knew that climate issues were were happening. We could see that there were major storms or wildfires or things like that. But wow, we can really see them in a way that you cannot look past them right now. Even just volatility in markets. Like if you look at supply chains, I don't know what it's like when you go to the shop to try to buy the things you normally go about buying. But, you know, for example, when I go to buy the things for my children's lunches, I have elementary school age children. There's a shortage in like the little packets of juice that you normally put in lunch boxes, which apparently is related to the pandemic and the supply chains that are there associated with. And and it just really introduces a different type of risk into the system than we used to think about. And so I think for us at MCC, because we are thinking about what is it that drives growth or constrains growth and what's the role that we can play in helping promote growth and therefore poverty reduction, we have to be responsive to that. So for example, we're actively looking at how do we calculate climate risk when we think about making an investment. You know, obviously, if you do infrastructure investments, you need to do them in a climate smart way. That's you know, something we're committed to. You'll find that all over our website as well. But it's also something we've been doing for a little while. That's not new news. How do we think about what it means to be climate smart right now is a slightly different question than how do we make this particular piece of infrastructure climate savvy, right? Um, so I think risk and, and how do we respond to it is the really clear uh, space in which evolution is definitely needed. And I'm, I feel like proud to say that we're actually looking pretty intensely at some of those things. The second piece is digital. You and I are in two totally different geographies right now. We're talking through uh, an internet application that I'm probably not supposed to name drop, so I won't. <laughs> but the, you know, our ability to do that is, is also something that can drive, you know, growth of small businesses, growth of large businesses, our entire global economy depended on it in this last 18 months. And so that's not a space that most of the international support and development assistance community really thinks a lot about as being, quote, a development issue. We have often thought about, you know, really visible, tangible infrastructure, really visible, tangible sectors of the economy. And digitals, you can't see it, but we all count on it. And so I think there's a lot of evolution coming in how we think about being a actor, a development actor in pursuit of sound economies and, and wide participation in them when we think about the digital space. So I think those are the two that, that are kind of the biggest. And yeah, I think those are the two that are the biggest. I think there's some interesting questions about um, how we think about who's included and able to participate, but that may actually, that, that's tipping into a whole other subject. So let me stop there and say, I think those are the two. <laughs> that's really helpful and totally fascinating. And I wonder, Alicia, I'm sort of throw in a sort of an extra question here around picking up on the kind of climate risk investing and and making sure you've got, I guess, a sense of the either mitigation or vulnerability to climate risks. This is still quite emerging, I think, for a lot of companies, certainly that I'm working with around actually how do you put people or put a people lens on your climate action? I was wondering, is there anything, any learnings that you've taken from the work that you've done that you recommend others should perhaps learn from whether your mistakes or your successes in, in terms of how to do that? That's a great question. I'll be honest. Um, we've got about 200 evaluations posted on our website, which include a wide range of successes and not successes, right? <laughs> um, and that's, that's part of being transparent. It also means I, I won't, I don't have a great at my fingertips specific, you know, go specifically to this one and take a look at what we learned there. I will say, though, that the question of how do people experience this and what effect does it have on what they are doing on a day-to-day basis, whether that is through their individual jobs, through the way they need to support their family, 
let me go back actually to our Malawi compact that I mentioned before that was an investment in the power sector. You know, one of the things, and this was, you know, the design work for a program that finished in 2018 would have been done in like 2010 or so, right? So closer to 2010 than to today. The work around that, when it looked at what was hindering production of power, was actually not just about the heavy infrastructure we think about in terms of electricity production, but because they relied on some hydroelectric power in some ways, runoff from fertilizers that farmers were using into the river that served the power plant was causing a huge outgrowth of weeds that was reducing the plant's ability to produce energy. Now, the farmers used the fertilizer on purpose because it, it grew their crops better, and that's that's a piece of how it affects people. But the collective effect of it actually really had a negative outcome in terms of that area's ability to generate electricity, which also served those same people or could serve those same people. So I think, you know, one of the big takeaways for us, and I think this underpins a lot of our work. And to be honest, a lot of when we're trying to solve a naughty problem here about what is the right investment to make or the right way to make it, a lot of individuals' anxiety rests on the fact that many of our problems are really integrated. Of course, farmers wish to use fertilizer. That is totally appropriate. <laughs> but of course, power plant needs actually running water to be able to depend on a hydroelectric generation capacity. Both of those are acceptable and to be desired outcomes. And so one of the, the challenges, and I think, you know, I worked in the private sector myself. I worked at a tech startup for a long time, for a while, and in a couple of other firms that do some work around the world. It's not just a, in, an agency like MCC that needs to make investments that thinks about these things. Like, how do our challenges fit together, both the ones we're trying to solve and the ones we're bumping into? Um, and then how do we navigate through that? And I don't think you'll find that any of our individual evaluations say it in quite those terms. But that is, I think, one of the the most significant pieces of learning that we we're a 17, you know, 15 to 17 year old agency at this point. And right now, I think our understanding of the complexity of the world we're working in. And so therefore, the way we need to structure and build our investments is more sophisticated um, and possibly slightly more anxious, you know, appropriately so. Um, but I think more accurate in terms of thinking about the way people and the challenges that we encounter fit together. For those listening, I'll make sure we'll find the right links for you guys in terms of um, some of those evaluations that Alicia mentioned, and we'll put the links into the words that sit alongside the podcast. But I just, yeah, and I think that kind of complex system approach and how do you make really good decisions given that complexity, I think that's a really big challenge for all of us. I mean, business and, and other agencies and organizations around the world. And I wondered whether we could then sort of move into looking at some of those other agencies. I mean, where do you think there's sort of policy momentum at the moment and engagement around that kind of greater economic inclusion, greater, you know, support for vulnerable people, poverty reduction, et cetera? I think there is so much more actual evidence right now that multiple people are looking at differently. So, uh, you know, boiling it down, there is more that is knowable in the world. <laughs> I said earlier, I think our risks are more visible. I think we actually also can know more about the effect of them or the consequences of them than we did even 10 years ago. You know, inclusion and economic inclusion in particular are, I think, one of the places in which we have much, much more information and basis for policy momentum than we've ever had before. You know, the volume of work that has been done in the last 10 years on the way in which the structure of an economy does or does not allow kind of individuals at different points in the income spectrum to actually access the benefits of economic growth so that can they get to the schools that have more resources available? Can they get to the jobs that pay them higher wages? 
what's causing portions of the population to, to be stuck in different income levels. I think we have much more knowledge and research and evidence base on that for that than I think we've ever had as a planet. And so I think you're starting to see that show up. We're certainly seeing, you know, I work inside of an agency, so I'm just like, what we're doing here, right? You know, this is a thing we're regularly talking about. How do we think about what constitutes inclusive growth, not just growth? And I think you're hearing that across the board. You know, other bilateral agencies and, and international support organizations are thinking and talking a lot more about it. I think some are asking really complex questions about the, the relationship between social structures and economic structures. I think, you know, for as much as many people understand and think about the IMF and the World Bank as um, these kind of giant um, monolithic entities, some of the research that comes out of them really provides a basis for policy change, both at government levels, but also organizational levels. Like we can know something about what it's appropriate to do than that we didn't know before. I think there's a greater recognition that inequality can slow growth because it reduces folks' participation in the economy. And so that that statement, nobody made that statement 15 years ago. And that alone like opens the door to a whole bunch of new ways of operating and thinking about what can you do that bolsters growth and what can you do that allows uh, people to participate, whether those whether it's people or organizations or, or, or firms. I don't know if I have the right answer on where, where like agency-wise or organization-wise, where I see the momentum most, but I think as a planet, <laughs> we've had to come to terms with some things in the last 10 years that we didn't, we kind of kept more at arm's length before. And so I think there is, that recognition leads to some momentum and opens some doors that I don't think we had before. And if you did have your sort of magic wand, what would you make happen? Yeah, no, this is the people side again. So I talked a little bit earlier about how we have different components to our investments and that for our compact, you know, people always think about the infrastructure piece. They don't always think about the institutional reform piece. And you know, the reality is if you build a road, the road doesn't have to want people to use it in order for that road to be useful. Like once it is there, if it is well designed, it does its job extremely well. Institutions and people are not the same. <laughs> if you are worried about the regulatory environment around transportation in a country, you actually do have to get people, organizations, institutions, governments to cooperate and to hold to that cooperation. So you know, what is the licensing structure? What, how many checkpoints are there along that road at which, you know, there's a customs check at the border, but if there's four customs checks, actually that's an opportunity for corruption. That's not just a customs check anymore. You know, things like that, that our compacts depend on both building the road and looking at those regulatory environments. If it's got four customs checks at the border, it's still not helping to generate the kind of growth it could if it was just the road that allowed for more clean, smooth, low-cost transportation. So if I had a magic wand, it would be to have the institutional reform happen at the same pace as the construction. At this point, we have lots and lots of amazingly talented engineers and analysts and, and environmental specialists and who, who can help us really accelerate the pace at which we can build the infrastructure. The human side of building the institutions and managing organizational change within those institutions and, and regulations, man, that is hard. <laughs> and so if I had a magic wand, um, a little magic would be in order to, to get that to work best. Oh, definitely. A little bit of magic would be helpful, please, sometimes. Um, Alicia, just sort of concluding our conversation today, you know, you've, you've been on a journey, as you, as you mentioned, through a number of different organizations and sectors. If somebody else is coming up through and trying to make impact and, and get their organizations to kind of take action. What would be your advice to them from the kind of experiences that you've got? How do you in, encourage them to 
to be successful. I'm glad you asked this, actually, because you may be able to tell from me using the word folks fairly consistently throughout this or y'all, which is a southern expression here in the U.S., I don't necessarily have the exact background that lots of people expect uh, in this sector. And so I think my best advice is you don't have to be from where everyone tells you you needed to have been from in order to do well in this space <laughs> and to have impact in this space. The, it's not the right degree or the right school. It is a under, so I think, um, you know, I grew up in Northwest Florida, which is a part of the U.S. It is not recognized for having the highest quality educational system. Um, I went to a bunch of, you know, uh, government-owned state the supported schools, they're great. I'm proud of them. None of them are the most elite schools, but really stay. I've been lucky and had the luxury of hard work letting me go from one job to the next. It was just the thing I was fascinated in that I had a question about that I wanted to answer. So I started originally working in the Balkans after wars in the Balkans were so much a part of the news in that point in my life that I just wanted to understand better what was going on. Um, got very interested in the economic dimension because it's hard to understand a war if you don't understand the economy. Wound up shifting then into a space where economic growth and people's participation in it, like how do we how do we make it accessible to more people and, and what kinds of investments can a place make? And that took me here. Passing through the set of questions that are most interesting to you. And if you're coming new to the professional space, <laughs> I always like to say it's finding the thing you love doing that you're good enough to do that people will pay you to do it. And that is in many ways the trick, um, I think, in every sector. But in this one, too, is not not thinking you have to have had been through the right spaces, but knowing you just, yes, educate yourself and know the field of, of the portion of our sector that you're most interested in. If that's infrastructure, great. If that is uh, you know, human rights and democracy, great. If that is environmental implications, great. No, you know, go run to the mats on your own sector um, and don't ever stop asking the question that you think is most interesting because there's a lot of different people in our field. And I think often what we hear are kind of things that realistically, if I think about myself 20 years ago, I would not have been able to do some of those things. There's no way that can be the entry point for this sector. Like we're all part of the planet. We got to figure out how to make it move forward. Well, on those wise words, I'm going to bring our conversation to a close. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing such important insights. Thanks, Katie. It's really been a pleasure to be here. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 